So, 2 Peter is where we're at. If you haven't guessed by now, it's near the end of the Bible, just past James. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible sitting in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible as our gift. We would love to give it to you and, um, and have you enjoy that. Uh, last week, I recognized that uh, people don't come every single week sometimes. Many of you I see week in and week out, um, but once in a while you miss a Sunday. And last week was our big community group on-ramp. It was a time where we just devoted time to make it really, really easy to, to get involved in our community groups. And so everyone received one of these. It's just a little document that says, Welcome to Community Groups at Neighborhood Bible Church. And what it does, it helps lays out what we mean by small groups, what we're doing with community groups, how they fit into the overall strategy of what we're doing, and theologically, just where we're coming from, why we do this. So if you missed that, I would encourage you to go listen to the podcast this week and check it out. And if you didn't get one of these, on the back table are a whole bunch of them. So you can grab one, um, and just outside this door, on the back of your bulletin each week, on the website, 24 hours a day, are all the different community groups that we have throughout the week. Um, you may be surprised to find out that, that throughout the week, um, kind of all over the city, in fact, we have people meeting and um, gathering to just encourage one another and build each other up in the faith and pray for one another and point each other toward God. So, um, so check that out if you haven't been able to yet. Uh, as we start a new series in Second Peter, what I want to do is I want to give uh, a little background first and kind of talk about Second uh, Peter, um, kind of an overview and then we're going to actually get into the, to the book uh, this morning and, and look at a specific passage as well. You may have asked this question of yourself at some point, why read through the Bible? Maybe you did that before you were a Christian. Maybe you're doing that right now as a seeker, as a Christian, whatever it may be. Uh, maybe you've been in the midst of reading through the Bible and you're asking yourself the question, why am I reading through the Bible? When you read through the Bible, if you spend any time in the Bible, what you find is this. You find it's, it's uplifting. It's freeing, it's faith-inducing, it's instructive, and it's frustrating, it's confusing, it's dry, and it's difficult. It's all of those things. Sometimes in any given passage, it can be all of those things. So as you read through the scripture, you probably find yourself asking, why am I doing this? And what I want to do is just share a couple of thoughts before we go into preaching through a book of the Bible and just share a couple of thoughts as to why we would preach through a whole book of the Bible to kind of see that, that really it's some of the same reasons of why you would read through a book of the Bible. Here's one. One is that all of it is profitable. The Bible itself says of itself that all of it is profitable. If, if God really wrote a book, if you're on the fence on this, if God wrote a book, would he not choose to preserve that which is profitable? So what we see in the scriptures is to say, all of it's profitable, therefore, even the parts that frustrate me, even the parts that confuse me, even the parts that are dry are profitable to me. Now that's an act of faith when you're reading through a genealogy or some uh, Levitical you know, priest practice in Leviticus, right? That takes some faith to say, God, I'm not sure why you've preserved the beheading of doves for this sacrifice for me, um, but, but I want to read it on faith. You do that enough, and, and I have a, a hunch that you'll start to see uh, some things, even in those parts that used to be dry, God will start to speak to you even in those parts. The parts that are frustrating, confusing, maybe those are some of the most important parts of the scripture, because they don't just line up immediately with who we are. We all need countering by God to shape us and mold us. Now, there's many types of studies, and those are great, and we employ those here. We just wrapped up a series called Greater Than. That was, that was taking some themes of the Bible and preaching through them. Those are great. There's a lot of great study books out there. There's a lot of great Christian authors that build your faith, that do some different things. Those are all fantastic. But preaching through, reading through the Bible, especially a whole book of the Bible, does a couple of things. One is it keeps us from focusing on pet themes while neglecting other truths that God would have for us. Do you know what I mean by that? There are some passages you have memorized, not because you went out and disciplined yourself to memorize them, but because you resonate with them so much. But because you've needed them and you've prayed those into your life, and so you'll talk about those and think about those truths often. If we're not careful, what we can do is this. We can do, um, in essence, what uh, I think it was Edison who... Um, 
It was Edison or Jefferson who literally cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't like. So parts he didn't agree with, he was a theist. So the parts that he didn't agree with, he just cut out. And he had probably this ratty-tatty Bible, because he didn't believe in miracles or the supernatural, which is a lot of the Bible, right? Well, we can effectively do the same thing by just focusing on the truths that we like, if, if we're not careful. Something about going through an entire book of the Bible, or the whole Bible, that shoves truths in your face that shoves realities, that shoves God revealing him who he is, that doesn't line up with you. Now you're forced into a decision. Go, wow, I don't like that. What do I do about that? It also helps us from, from uh, neglecting certain truths. Second Timothy warns about, uh, about just scratching, itching ears or turning aside to mids. Thirdly, God's providence is on display when you read through the Bible. Um, it is really powerful to see God, peak curiosity, reveal truths, guard your mind, feed your soul, comfort your heart, and awaken your mind right in the midst of a reading plan in the Bible. Right in the midst of preaching through Second Peter, my hunch is that you will come across some truths that if you went and cherry-picked those truths, you could find that the Bible talks about those. But it's so powerful to me to be on a reading plan and, and reading through the scriptures and go, how could God possibly have known? I'm in Jeremiah right now. That's part of my reading plan. How could God possibly have known that I would need to hear something from the prophet Jeremiah on this day, on this week, with this circumstance going on? God, you're speaking to me through a uh, thousands-year-old prophet right now. And I would have never turned to Jeremiah because it wasn't necessarily great devotional reading that I was looking for. My hunch is as we go through Second Peter, uh, you will be astounded to pick up themes and truths that are applying to your everyday life, and you'll be able to see them in your week. All right, that's part of why we go through a book of the Bible. By the way, our, our bread and butter around here is to just teach through a book of the Bible. And then we offset that by doing some different kinds of series and, and little short pullouts of things. Let's talk about Second Peter for a moment. Every single book of the Bible shares some common traits. Number one is that they are all authored supernaturally by God the Spirit. That's the, the great continuity of the Bible. The Bible is a word that means book. If you understand the Bible, what you understand really, it's a library of books. It's 66 books bound in one. And God wrote the book, and so there's great continuity from it. It's actually pretty powerful to start to do some research and realize that some 40 different writers spanning centuries, writing from thrones and prison cells, from all vocations of life, literally kings to shepherds to common people, three different languages, and yet the continuity, all the critics through the ages have tried to tear apart the Bible. And there's this, there's this continuity to the Bible that's supernatural. That's because God authored every book in the Bible. If you're in 2 Peter, I want you to turn to, to 120. We're going to flip around a little bit in the first half of this morning, just because uh, we're, we're just at 10,000 feet kind of showing you a few things. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in several places that this book, the Holy Scriptures, was written by God. As such, we believe that there is truth to be found in the Scriptures. That's different then letting the scriptures guide you to discover your own truth. Do you, do you track with the difference? To use the scriptures as a guide for you to discover your own truth leaves interpretation up to something totally different. In fact, it's what Second Peter just condemns. It's leaving the interpretation up to each person's individual experience, their heart, their passions, their intellectual ability how they're feeling that week, whether they have indigestion from the pizza last night. I mean, that's where it leaves it up to. Instead, as you approach the Scriptures from the way the Scriptures would instruct us to approach the Scriptures, it's to say, no, there's truth to be revealed and dug for in and of itself. 
Next, every book of the Bible is written through distinct people in certain times. Or in other words, it's written by individuals. Once again, let me give you a little interpretation, um, practical tip out of this. That means that as we uncover the meaning of a book, it's actually imperative to understand who wrote it. It's really important to understand the world that he wrote it in. It's really important to understand the times and the age that he wrote it in. Lest we take some truths that were written here and meant very clearly to some original listeners, and we just superimpose our own meaning to that. So, so that takes some work. That takes some bridging sometimes. As you're reading through the scriptures, as you're listening to a sermon, as you're wanting to uncover, God, what did you mean by this? You need to do a little bit of background work and just figuring out who's speaking, when was it written, what were the specific situations going on, what was the occasion of the book. Now, we're not going to get into a ton of that. Many of you have good study Bibles. If not, they're available free online now. You can go to a study Bible and just start looking. When was Second Peter written? What was the occasion written? I'm not going to rehash a whole bunch of that. Some of that will come out as we go through. But it might be good this week to just do a little bit of background um, uh, updating on that. Lastly on Second Peter, and the fact that uh, is true for all Bible books is this, that each part or book is subject to the whole. That there's no standalone book of the Bible. God wrote the book, therefore wondering what something means, I mean, you ought to do this. You ought to interpret Second Peter in light of Second Peter, and then you ought to interpret Second Peter in light of the whole of Scripture. So as we interpret, as we look, as we pray to God, God, would you help me not pour meaning into the Bible? Would you help me not to preach and say what you're not even saying? Would you help me to understand what you've preserved for us? Those are some of the things that we need to do. Second Peter 3.16, flip over there for a moment. It says this, he writes the same way, he's talking about Paul, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And then he says this, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. This is Peter, the apostle, writing about Paul, the apostle. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Interpret according to the immediate context, then to the biblical context, the, the, the book context, and then allow the whole of Scripture to govern it. What's the consequence of going astray? What's the consequence of just putting your own meaning into it? It says to their own destruction. Sadly, when a false shepherd is doing that, guess what happens? The sheep tend to follow. So it's not just their own uh, destruction, but others as well. Look at the very next verse if you're there. 2 Peter 3 17 says this, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. We go to the very back of the book to kind of find some some themes woven through the whole of the book. So if you want to know what 2 Peter's about, there's a, there's a lot of ways to break this down, but let me highlight a couple of things. One is he says this, since you already know this, here's what you will find in the book of 2 Peter. You will find the words remind, remember, and the fact that Peter is calling to mind past events. He reaches back into history and says this, didn't God do this? Remember that. Don't forget how God acted in the past. Parents, let me ask you this. How much of parenting is telling your children something new versus reminding them of something they already know? Give me a percentage. How much is, how much is something new in parenting in general, percentage-wise? One percent, says a father of how many? Five kids. They're all grown and out of the house. One percent. I, that, I would concur with that. I think, I think much of it, as you walk through your life, you're not ever telling your kids new things. You're reminding them of things. So it is with Christian parenting. 
Peter's kind of a Christian parent here, and he's saying, look, remember this? Don't forget this. Coaches in the room, you identify with this. Anyone in the military, you understand this. Over and over and over. Let's drill the basics. Let's get back to simplicity. Why are you guys off doing that? Some of you will watch football today. Fundamentals, right? All coaches preach that. You already know this. Practice what's already been instructed. But isn't there a lust for the new? And isn't there sort of a a disdain for what you already know? There's a disdain for what's already been revealed. And there's this hunger, there's this insatiable appetite to say, give me, give me, give me, give me something new. What's old clearly isn't working. Give me something new. You don't need to turn there. But in Acts 28, Paul is preaching. And it says this. It says, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. All preaching, all witnessing, all sharing, all being a faithful witness of Christ is going to have that component to it. Some will believe. Some will disbelieve. So it was with Paul, probably one of the greatest minds that ever lived. And then in verse 25 it says this, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. You know who he was talking to? He was talking to people who made sport of going day after day after day after day to discuss and debate and argue new ideas. And the idea behind what he's saying, he's calling to mind, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah. Jesus quoted from the same passage, actually. And what he's saying, the idea is this. There will be ever learning. There will be learning upon learning, but never understanding. There will be knowledge upon knowledge, but no wisdom. Uh, This seems really timely for our day and age. We have the ability with our thumbs to access almost anything our hearts crave in that moment, right? Right? We could type away and just begin to accumulate more and more knowledge. And I wonder how much wisdom is growing. If we could somehow chart, you math nerds, figure this out. If we could somehow chart wisdom, the application of knowledge, versus the accumulation of knowledge alone, I think the, I think the graph would look a little different, wisdom versus knowledge. Wouldn't you agree? By the way, catch what Paul says here. The Holy Spirit says through the prophet Isaiah. Who wrote the book of Isaiah? God did. How did he do it? Through an individual named Isaiah. So Paul here, just in common knowledge preaching, is affirming what we just said about the idea of God writing the book. Here's why I bring this up. When when reminding and remembering is central... I don't want you to shut this off as if, well, I've heard this before, so it must not be applicable. It must not be helpful. I must not need this. Rather, maybe the answers you so desperately seek are hidden in plain sight. Maybe they've been tucked back here in 2 Peter for a while. You ever ask God something and say, God, would you just write the answer on the sky? Maybe it's been written for centuries in the book. And here it is, just kind of gathering dust. While we beg and plead and and cry out to God, why is he silent? Why aren't you revealing things to me? So just because you've heard it before, maybe you've read 2 Peter a hundred times. If that's true, come talk to me, by the way. Um, I might just have you come preach it. But maybe you've read this thing a ton of times. Maybe you've heard some of these truths. Maybe you go, yeah, I've heard that before. Don't immediately categorize that as let me shut down and blow it off. All right, he says something else in the passage. Not only since you already know this, but be on your guard. You may have noticed on your bulletin um, this graphic. We're we're calling this series on guard. Because this idea of of being on guard is, is kind of woven through all three chapters of the book. A lot of times I'll give you a visual, I mean a a tagline, words to kind of capture what the little creative French words are talking about. 
And this time I decided not to give you a word tagline, but a visual tagline. So you have three icons that basically, that basically walk us through the book, and, and here they go. I'll walk them through really quickly for you. Chapter one is a lifeguard ring. Because chapter one's going to talk all about guarding your own character, guarding your integrity, guarding your heart. Your heart is central. Temptations abound in this life, Christian. On guard. That's chapter one. When you see the life preserver ring, you're the lifeguard for your own life. Okay? That's chapter one. Here's chapter two. Chapter two, there's a sword. Because in chapter two, Peter's going to lay out the fact that attack is coming. Be ready for it. There's going to be, there's going to be heresy uh, from amongst your own people. Be prepared for a fight. There's enemies to this thing called the Christian faith. Uh, these words on guard are set at the start of every fencing match. I've never been to a fencing match, but I'm going to take Wikipedia's word for it on that one. And you immediately and instinctively understand what's happening. If someone says, on guard, you immediately reach for your weapon, right? And you go, I'm, I'm about ready to be attacked. Our weapon, friends, is the sword of the Spirit. So all through the Bible, or all through this book, you're going to see Peter appeal to you understanding the book, to you growing in knowledge. That's your sword. That's your weapon that you take up. No one can take that up for you. You need to take it up yourself. We're going to find, uh, just in the first few verses that we look at this morning, the word knowledge shows up two times, just in the very beginning. In the very last verse of the book, we've already looked at it, but look at verse 18, 318. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to fight falsehood? On guard. Take up your sword. Number three is a trumpet. Chapter three is talking about the future and the certainty of Jesus' return. So there's a warning. It's a wake-up call. It's an alarm clock. Church, guard your hope. Guard what you're living for. Guard what you're planning for. Guard what your confidence is in. 401k, bad plan. You're, you're planning way too short into the future. Happy home life, way too short in the future. You're an eternal being. Plan ahead, way ahead. Trumpet, because there's a trumpet blast coming. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 52. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Who's looking forward to that day? Yeah. And the church said, amen. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're planning for. My hope is that as you see these icons in the coming week, I pray that they would serve as kind of a visual reminder that you could actually remember what Second Peter's about, and actually you could break it down by chapter. You visual learners should have no problems with this. I'm appealing to you right now. I hope that when you think Second Peter... And, Chapter 3, you remember that trumpet. You know, Second Peter, chapter 3, that's all about the coming day of the Lord. And there's going to be some verses that will kind of jump out at you. Second Peter 1, lifeguard, that means life ring. That means just guarding the heart. He's talking all about our own personal walk and how we apply that. Finally, on guard is seemingly the perfect nod to the author. Wasn't it Peter, disciple, Brash, cocky, impulsive, in the garden. He didn't even shout on guard, right? He just swung. Why did he cut off Malchus's ear? Because he's not very good with the sword. He's a fisherman, right? For honor! You know, he just busted the sword out. On guard! And then he makes this giant proclamation to Jesus at one point. Remember, he says, man, I'm willing to not only suffer for you, but to die for you. What's he do? He denounces. Well, now the student has become the teacher. And here's Peter, an example, a trophy of God's grace. And he's writing this letter to his friends that he's shepherding. There's a couple of companion books, and, and again, some of you are, uh, are going to take me up on this. Some of you won't. That's okay. 
Uh, you're going to hear from, from 2 Timothy once in a while um, as we work our way through 2 Peter. Because in 2 Peter and in 2 Timothy, what you find is you find a lot of striking parallels. Mind you, this is the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. You quiz people on the street who don't know their Bible very well, they've probably heard of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, right? So two of the big wigs from the New Testament that God just used in some big, powerful ways, they wrote some books, uh, these, these letters, at the end of their life. They had been supernaturally revealed to them that the end was near. Both of them mentioned that in their, in their, better, in, in their letters. And what they do is they, they have this, this common theme that, that, that creeps up. I'm about to, to end my life on this earth. Church, let me leave you with some things. And you know what they leave the, the church with? Warning. Some rotten days are ahead. Some tough days are ahead. And so there's some warning. They both warn about false teaching and how prevalent it will be. We'll get into 2 Peter, but listen to 2 Timothy 3.13. While evil people and imposters, catch this, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Both of them warn of false teachers. Secondly, both of them warn of just the kind of general corruption of society. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.1. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and on and on his list goes. Society's not going to be a cakewalk for you, Christian. It's going to get worse. And Second Peter has those same themes. The third thing that they both very clearly warn about is this impending apostasy. The idea of people renouncing the faith, falling away from orthodoxy, turning aside into just myths, morphing the truth. Second Timothy 4.3 For the time is coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I've just given you three kind of highlights from Second, P- from Second Timothy. These all overlay into Second Peter. And here's Second Peter's message. On guard. Watch out for these things. I'm telling you them in, in advance so that you can prepare, so that you won't be taken unaware. Wake up so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Second companion book is the book of Jude. In fact, if you read Jude and Second Peter, you'll find all kinds of striking similarities. So, Second Timothy and Jude are going to be kind of sprinkled in because, again, there's just some, some interesting tie-ins to all of those. All right. That's overview. We're now going to land the plane. We're going to bring it right into a little close zoomed-in section. We're going to start in 2 Peter 1.1 because that seems like a good place to start. Let me read it for you. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there's kind of this salutation and greeting that goes on uh, in most all books of the Bible. But here's a letter being written. And who's it from? It's from Simon Peter. Now, double names are weird for me because I'm not from the South. But in the South, people use two names all the time. Stephen Curtis is married to Mary Beth. And they go around using two names all the time. Now, as I thought about that, I thought, well, it's not too odd. I actually have two of my children um, who have four names instead of the more traditional three names. And it dawned on me, we just like naming things. We keep having kids and animals because we love to name things. So maybe I shouldn't pick on the South. But in Bible times, it was really common to have two names. Simon is his Hebrew name, and it just means this, God is heard. And Peter, many of you remember, was a name that Jesus actually came and gave to him. It was a Greek name. Uh, um, term that meant stone or rock. Curiously, this is the only New Testament author who uses both names here. Simon Peter. Some commentators have speculated maybe that's to kind of put out there this, 
this dual nature of, of who he was. Here's who, I, here's who I was, and here's who God made me to be, and kind of formed a more complete picture in that. Think about his name, Simon. God is heard. That's certainly true of Peter. At Pentecost, Peter stood up and announced the following. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has heard through Peter. That's a pretty bold preaching thing, huh? How about the name Rock? Jesus gives him this name after he proclaims the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior sent from God. And then Jesus says, on this rock, not the man, but that truth, this declaration about Jesus Christ, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And it's come to pass. When we teach through a membership class, you know how you become a church member? You're a Christian first. You know how you become a Christian? You make that declaration. You ascribe to that truth about Jesus Christ. That's central to all things Christianity. On this rock, I will build my church. He goes on to give a double title, servant and apostle. Servant or slave of Jesus, an apostle, which simply means sent one, one who has the authority to proclaim the word of God. Interesting that Peter sees himself as both a slave and an apostle, one with authority to go and proclaim the things of God with confidence. This Peter is the one who was eyewitness to the resurrection. He was leader of the twelve. He was present at the transfiguration. And somehow Peter kind of holds in tension this, this dual nature. We all have this dual nature as Christians. We all have a master that we're subject to and that we're called to be servants of all. So we have the slave-servant component down. But we're also full of authority because God's Spirit is alive in us. If an apostle, lowercase a, is simply a sent one, guess what? By default, Christian, you're an apostle. You're sent out to go and make disciples of all the earth with full authority to proclaim the Word of God because His Spirit's alive in us. All right, that's who it's from. Here's who it's to. It's not to a specific church, but to fellow Christians, many of whom were probably Gentiles. How do you become a Christian? You believe the gospel. The righteousness that we have is from Jesus Christ through faith. We are made right from God. It's been obtained for us. We simply receive it. He says this in verse 2. It's a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Equal in standing. There's no partiality. Peter was an eyewitness. Peter was a leader. Peter was a born Jew. Peter got to spend all these years with Jesus. And in that culture, Peter was male. All of those things would have set him apart, you would think, as being a super Christian, as being privileged, as being in the first class seats in the airplane. Guess what? He says none of that matters. There's no special privilege in the kingdom of God. We all enter the same way. So all those things, you get to have same access as I do, even though you aren't an eyewitness. You aren't one of the 12. I wonder if as he wrote this, Peter was remembering a dream that he had years ago when God first burst through his bubble, his Jewish bubble, to begin to show that God's plan from day one is that this gospel message was going to go out to the whole world, to Gentiles. Take and eat, Peter. Three times the dream repeated it to him because he was so convinced it was the wrong thing to do. And then finally he got it. Wow, this thing is for the Gentiles too. How shocked he was when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit as well. That was the seal. That was the down payment. He's like, I get it. If you're not a Jew here today, you ought to be saying amen right now to that. Because that's good news for us, right? That's good news that God had it for the Gentiles as well. The ESV doesn't pick this up, but I want to show you a a different translation of, of how it translates this. 
equal in value or equal in honor is what the word also carries. NIV translates it really well, I think. A faith as precious as ours. How precious was the faith to Peter? Do you know that he died for his faith? Do you know that history tells us that he he chose to die upside down on a cross because he didn't count himself worthy to die in the same way as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So at his request, he's decided to add, add a different twist to it. It's pretty precious. This thing that we have is precious. My invitation to you, my challenge to you, my instruction to you is walk with people who treasure the faith. Walk with, with people who find it precious. I hope you don't just walk with Christians because we're sent out in the world, we're, sent to, we're called and sent to love those who don't yet know. But if you hang with and do life with scoffers all day long, it begins to erode your precious faith in your mind. It begins to make it something of lesser value, of something to be disregarded. Verse, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied you in the knowledge of of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. How are grace and peace to be multiplied? There's our word, knowledge. It's to be multiplied. It's to be ever-growing, abounding more and more. How? Through the knowledge of God and Jesus. There's this common sword of the Spirit that's running through the letter. All right, listen to verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there's that word again, of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Let me read verse 5 too. Verse 5 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he goes on to add other kinds of Christian character marks. Verse 3 says, His divine power has given us all things that we need for life and godliness. Two verses later, verse 5, it says, Make every effort. Does the Bible clear things up or make things more murky? The answer? Yes. I mean, it does both, right? So so which is it, God? Have you given me everything I need? Or am I supposed to make every effort to make things happen in this life? The language of the Bible often is yes. Has no problem having those two truths live side by side in the Scriptures. So what's it talking about? Some of you in this room have been down with me before to to Tecate, Mexico. There's a group of construction guys who were reading their Bible one day in Santa Cruz, and they said, you know what, this whole thing about caring for orphans and widows, I think we could do something about that. In simple obedience to that, they started this group called Club Dust. Club Dust is a group of carpenters that took their summer break, and they went down, and they began building houses for people just across the border. And they're still doing it. They've been doing it now for, I don't even know how long, at least 20 years. So years and years ago, I used to go down with them year after year. One of them was my old high school sponsor in in youth group that kind of heads that thing up. And when you show up down in club dust, you get off of a bus and you you come up to a slab of concrete, a foundation that's been poured and a whole stack of materials. I tell you, after this summer, I have a new respect for those slabs being put down there. I thought someone just laid some cement down and kind of smoothed it out. Uh Uh-uh. So there it was waiting for us, this, this, little, this little rectangle sl- uh, slab. And everything that we needed to build a house was there. Plans, studs, wires, switches, plywood, shingles, every screw, every switch, it was right there waiting for us. And a few days later, this miracle happened. A house was up. And there's this beautiful moment each time where you get to hand the keys over to someone who's been literally living with like corrugated plastic leaning up against a two-by-four, and now he has a house for his family. 
Don't believe the news that says short-term missions don't make a difference. I was attacked by a family member one time saying, you know that when you go down there, all those people do is take all that supplies and they sell it off? And I go, "Uh uh-uh. They may have found someone that's done that, but I've been going there year after year after year, and these guys have built up a whole hillside. And when that got completed, they moved on. It makes a difference. So the tears and the prayer and the blessing and the hugging commences as we all gather around and, and hand off the keys to this family. You know what happens in between showing up to a slab and a house being built? Here it is. Every effort. A lot of effort. Without effort, wood rots, foundations can get damaged, screws just rust, plywood warps in the elements, and there's no finished work. There's a partnership. You've got these club desk guys who are skilled to understand what the plans are, what the materials are, so that a hack like me can be put on a job site with one guy who knows what he's doing, and he can put all of us to work. Hey, do you know what this is? I'm like, yeah, I think it's a paintbrush. He's all good. Go paint. I can do that. Paint, 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 right? Do you know what this is? Yeah, it's a hammer. Do you know what this is? Yeah, it's a nail. Do you know what this is? Yeah, it's your thumb. Hit the nail. So I started doing that, you know? <laughs> so you sit there and, and, and do this. And everything that pertains to building a house is there waiting for us. But it doesn't get built unless what? We make every effort. You know who you don't want supplying the construction supplies at the start of the week? Be a, ter- be a terrible house. We'd make a ton of trips back to the construction store because I got the wrong, this is just personal experience, I got the wrong size, I got the wrong thing, I didn't get enough, I got too much, I got something that pertains to nothing about houses at all. So it's a partnership. The club dust guys come and provide everything that you need, and you come and you make every effort. Do you see it? That's, that's God in us. God's given us everything that we need. He supplies all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know what club dust never provided? They never provided a blender so we could make smoothies. I never once saw a comfy couch there or even a whole lot of shade. There wasn't a little charging station for our cell phones. They didn't provide any of that. They provided all things that pertained to building a house and an outhouse. That's it. Done. I can tell by many of the prayers that I pray and the answer no that I'm getting that they must not pertain to life and godliness. Because when I pray for them and God says no, I say, you know what? He's going to give me every last thing that I need that pertains to life and godliness. So that no must not be on his list. And if the club dust guys are above me in some knowledge, how much more God than all of life? How does this great supply line make its way to us? Look at it. It's through knowledge. This is the life ring. This is up to you. This isn't up to someone else doing study and memorizing and soaking in and and absorbing. This is up to you. Verse 3, through knowledge of him who called us, that would be Jesus. Verse 4, the precious and great promises of God. People, you've got to know what God promised and what he doesn't promise. A lot of wacky Christianity comes when people make up things that God never promised. Oh, the good book says... Are you sure about that? I don't, I don't think it says that, actually. Well, I know God wants me happy and healthy and prosperous. You ought to read um, the people God used. It wasn't always like that. I mean, that's all true someday in, in a different life, but not on this planet right now. Here are just some of the promises that, that God makes. Forgiveness, fountain of youth, otherwise called eternal life. His presence, the fact that you're never alone. 
The fact that he'll give more than enough in every situation. The fact that uh, you have freedom from sin. The fact that there's a coming kingdom that he will always be faithful and he's promised to return. There's a whole bunch more. But you got to learn and know these great and precious promises of God. I don't know about you, but as, as I set out on a journey, I tend to overpack. Anyone else ever be guilty of overpacking? Yeah, of course you have. Some of you are chronic overpackers. You know what overpacking is? Overpacking is this. Well, I might need this. Uh, once in 1983, there was a snowstorm in Miami in June. So I better pack my big woolly sweatshirt. And so what you're doing is you're packing because you have limited knowledge. If you were omniscient, you wouldn't overpack. Is that true? What would you bring? You'd bring just enough. Going through life with God is a little bit like traveling with someone who's taking your stuff and saying, yeah, this whole second bag, over the bridge, gone. This thing you think is so valuable and so important, you'll need so much, yeah, we're going to give that away to the next person that walks by the other way. And you're going, but, 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 but. If God's omniscient, he's always going to give you enough. His, his, um, let me get it right. His divine power has granted to us all things. Always enough. Do you smell another promise here? One of the promises of God is that you will always have enough for everything that pertains to life and godliness. That's what God provides. Uh, just jot down Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 7, this is Jesus talking. He says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. Now, we have to do some cultural unpacking in our family. Because in our family, we live with three snakes. And today, my 15-year-old is at a snake festival in Sacramento. So to read this passage, it's face value in the Carlson household. They're like, why would I want fish over a snake? That makes no sense at all. But then to go back culturally, they'd understand, oh, fish means feed, and snake means death. Okay, I get it now. You see that? This is context. This is understanding what's being said. Sometimes you've got you've to give some background information. What Jesus is saying here is, look, parents, you know how to give, give good gifts to your children. You know how to provide them with what you do. You're sinful. Add to that, you're limited. You're not omniscient. You don't know every last thing that they need. I do. So ask. Seek and knock. What does no mean? No might mean not yet, right? Sometimes it's just God's answer that, wow, it was just around the corner and that month of faith was really tough. But boy, did I draw close to God. Thank you, God, for not giving it to you a month ago when I was begging for it. No might mean no, because God always gives enough. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, and yet none of what pertains to death and worldliness. He would never give that. That's giving a snake, as it were. Listen to James 4.1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, Catch this. You do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Wow. God's giving us and will continue to give us and will always give us everything we need to build that house. Our role, jump in, roll up our sleeves, 
make every effort. As you are reminded to make every effort in the weeks ahead, remember who supplies the materials and plans as you build. Let me invite the band to come on up. Let me see if any of these describe your world. If you currently live in the never-enough world, I would ask you to question who's in charge. Maybe you gave lip service to Jesus being in control, but you really lead your life. Jesus paid it all, and Jesus wants it all. If you live in a never-enough world, I think you may be in charge. The word there might be yield. If you live in a can't-stop-worrying world, I challenge you to memorize Philippians 4, 6, and 7. John 15, 5 talks about the fact that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Philippians 4, 13 says, in Christ, we can do everything. So, number three, if you live in a nothing-can-stop-me-I-can-do-everything world that's grounded in Christ, give God the glory and focus on thankfulness. Probably most important are people who live in this world right now to remember, to call to mind, to think back of what got you here in this place. It's not your brilliant relational skills. It's not your incredible work ethic. It's not your tight intellect that got you here. It's a gift. It's the pure grace of God. And he could just as easily use the person sitting next to you to accomplish all that fruit and build all those houses that are going up in the name of Jesus right now. So keep up the effort, but keep it in Christ. Let me pray. God, just now as we continue to sing, I pray that the truths that you have for us would just continue to ruminate in our minds, soak in our minds. God, I thank you for the miracle of how you can use one speaker up here and say and speak to different hearts and minds where they're, where they're at right now. We thank you, God, for your word. We trust it. For those who don't trust it, God, I pray that, that you'd reveal the foundational trustworthiness of the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.